Well, I'm incredibly thankful this morning. I'm thankful for our praise team. They do an amazing job every week. They come in and they practice and they put it all together for us and they really do a great job preparing us for worship. I'm also thankful for our pastor, Jeff Kratz, and how he makes preaching look easy every week. Um, as, as I took on this task, uh, I was, I'm excited to do it. I was excited to do it. But uh, it was a Jeff Kratz Appreciation Week for me. So, um, so you guys can pray as I, uh, as I get into the Word today. Um, I, I want to start with uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be going through that today. So please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 9 from God's Word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and let the God of peace, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray for our time in the excellent word. Father, thank you for your truth, for the ministry of the Apostle Paul, for the freedom to open the Bible this morning and for your promise to be with us and to teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. May this teaching time be all about you. May I be protected from adding anything to or taking anything away from your perfect and complete word as given to us in Paul's epistle. May you be magnified, and may I be but a vessel for your purposes in our time to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so my sermon title this morning is Right Action Starts with Right Thinking. Right Action Starts with Right Thinking. Uh, which, as a bit of foreshadow, means I want to spend a good portion of our time teasing out the profound nature of verse 8, which I'll read again. Um, As I do, listen listen to it. Listen for its poetic sound and its cadence in the English language while thinking through and imbibing the theme in the words. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Well, before we we get deep, I want to offer some context. I want to first frame the passage in its historical and biblical settings, and then I I want to get personal. I want to tell you a personal story about me some 28 years ago and how this verse 8, this very verse 8, helped the Lord change my thinking when I was age 33 and I was deployed far away from home in the Middle East, preparing for combat that was to be Operation Desert Storm. So let's do the history first. Philippi was a strategic city 
at the southeast corner of Europe in Macedonia, which is today the northern part of modern Greece. It was a strategic city because it sat on the great northern highway between east and west, the Via Ignatia, and it was on the plains of Philippi that a tremendous and pivotal battle was fought in 42 B.C. This clash of armies on those plains led to the fall and suicide of two Roman generals, Cassius and Brutus, uh, men who had plotted to kill Julius Caesar in great drama. It was also this battle led to a triumvirate of power among a shared power among three men, one of whom was Octavian. Uh, Jeff had mentioned him, I think, last week uh, as he was preaching through Galatians. Octavian eventually went on to take out the other two, Mark Antony and a Roman patrician named Lepidus. And then Octavian, like the proverbial boa constrictor, squeezed any remaining opposition so as to consolidate all political power solely unto himself as Rome's first true emperor. Octavian, of course, later declared himself Caesar Augustus, elevating his stature to, in his mind at least, godlike status. And we see his lust for power, wealth, and control in his call for a census. You remember the census that sent the Virgin Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where we know our Savior Jesus Christ was born in keeping with prophecy. So what happened on the plains of Philippi marked the end of the Roman Republic, the great experiment of Roman work and Roman governance. It marked the rise of Rome now as an empire and a dictatorship, and in many ways it represents the commencement of what I'll call an absolute power corrupts absolutely slide, a slide ultimately ended in the unraveling and the ruin of the great Roman civilization. But one additional outcome of the Battle of Philippi was the Romanization of the area around Philippi. There was about 40,000 people there, and the Romanization was accomplished to a larger degree by the granting of lands to Roman military veterans. So one historian uh, that offered the arrival of, of veteran settlers in Philippi tells us that it needs to be seen in the context of the larger dislocations that were experienced by the locals, the Greek inhabitants of the city, as it was remade into a Roman colony. With conquest comes change. It's replete in history. So the new colonists were assigned land that would have to be seized from the locals. Think about that for a minute. Somebody come and taking your land and, and changing everything about your world. Um, It's not unthinkable, it's not unthinkable in our day. So these folks, they would have lost their citizenship in the newly reformed, now fully Roman colony, except perhaps a a few members of the richest elite. A scholar by the name of Joseph Markle has suggested that an appropriate way to think of Philippi in the decades after this battle in 42 BC and before the arrival of the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey is, and I'll quote, a social landscape in which various cultures, peoples, and groups interact, struggle, and come into conflict with one another, all within the constraints of broader imperial power relations of domination and oppression. Among the inhabitants of the mid-first century, one would find descendants of Roman soldiers, an entrenched local elite, Macedonians, Greeks, and a whole host of peoples moving in and out and through the city along the Via Ignatia, end quote. Sounds like a pretty good place to plant a church, right? So, enter the Apostle Paul. 
and he plants his first European church about 51 AD. Paul planted the church of Philippi during the early part of his second, military, uh, second missionary journey, and that's as documented in Acts 16. So you may remember that uh, Lydia and the jailer were among the first converts there, and Luke, the beloved physician Luke, and the writer of the third gospel, and the loyal missionary companion of Paul, he quite likely pastored this church at Philippi for its first six years. And this church at Philippi had a great reputation, relatively speaking. Uh, And so perhaps it was Luke's leadership that led to the unspotted character and generally pure reputation of the Philippine Philippian church. I, I find that interesting. I just, I, pastoring is so important. Um, so anyway, uh, the occasion of Paul's letter to the Philippians was about 10 years later after he had founded the church at Philippi. And it was penned while he sat alone in prison under persecution in Rome. His stimulus to write was the arrival of Epaphroditus from far away. It's a long way from Philippi to Rome. And it was Epaphroditus that was bringing a love offering of money to support Paul's foreign missionary work. Well, again, we love missionaries. We love missionaries in this church. And here is an extraordinary moment in my mind. My research indicates that Paul, even though he preaches uh, in, in, in this chap- very chapter, he talks about being content, there's also, there's also a, a humanity to Paul. And my research indicates that, you know, he was battling some anguish, born of the prison deprivations and the looming potential of being executed. We know he didn't get executed this time, but uh, there was concern there. And he was also fearing at some level that his beloved church at Philippi, the very people that he missed in this special church, may have kind of gone on with their lives and forgotten about him. In fact, in verse 10 of chapter 4, uh, Paul I think reveals his heart where he says he's, he's rejoicing greatly because they had revived their concern for him and that indeed they were concerned for him but had no opportunity to come. So I don't know. I've never been in prison, but I, I have been alone. I've been far from home and fighting discouragement. And I can only imagine how filled Paul's heart must have been with this arrival of Epaphroditus. For you Lord of the Rings fans... This is a Frodo and Sam Gamgee level of fellowship. Imagine how filled his heart was. This is connection and encouragement. And Paul, so beautifully filled and encouraged, responds to what I believe is this perfectly timed by our sovereign and loving God infusion of hope and with an utterly, utterly beautiful love letter. Paul pens a masterpiece. He's offering assurance of his own well-being to those who love him. He's offering encouragement emanating from their encouragement to him. And then Paul paints an unparalleled picture of Christ, the unfathomable humility of Christ, emptying himself, demonstrating obedience, and earning unequaled exaltation. That's sort of the meat of the book of Philippians, unequaled exaltation. And that is Jesus is the name above every name. And then finally, Paul in his precious letter to his friends offers why and how the gospel should and will advance in the face of personal sin, conflict inside the church, withering opposition from the world and the relentless attack from the enemy. In short, Paul provides a blueprint for fellowship. 
real, beautiful, joyous, transcendent, beat all the odds, sacrifice for one another, band of brothers, fellowship that is beyond mere friendship. Fellowship beyond friendship. Indeed, I read Philippians as a blueprint for fellowship. Fellowship for a cause that is definitely going to exceed any kind of earthly fellowship. Our Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the Philippians, says this, Paul articulates a fellowship rooted in God and in the context of a quest that can only be described as eternal. Folks, this is what we all long for. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we want to be part of something true and right and noble and well beyond ourselves. Why? Because we're made in God's image. And he put this longing in us, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that alone grants us this hope. Well, beyond a hunger for fellowship, for eternal fellowship, we also want guideposts. And we want assurances in making choices and decisions, getting through the day, as it were. Well, when at conversion our spiritual eyes are opened, and we see things as they really are, and we see the battle raging around us, the desperate fight for our very souls, we're hungry. We're hungry to discern and decide with wisdom. Whether small things or life-altering decisions, who do I marry, what job do I take, where do I go, what do I do next, we want help here. We need a decision grid that results in peace in our hearts and in our minds, even as we face the blitz of pressure. I don't know about you, but right now, it's, it's hard to... It's hard to look at the news, is it not? It's, it's just not encouraging. We live in a time of pressure, and we want to make good decisions. We want to live by truth. Well, as you'll sh- see shortly, Paul exhorts in Philippians that, again, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that provides this decision grid, nothing else. Just a bit more to drive home the point on fellowship, and then I'll tell you about how a Paul-like leader in my own past Use Philippians 4.8 to trigger truth and hope in my heart. Pastor Hughes elaborates on this idea of fellowship around a quest with an anecdote about theologian Broughton Knox, who was serving as a young chaplain in the British Navy on a ship preparing for D-Day in the Allied invasion of Normandy in June of 1944. Chaplain Knox noted that the minds of all hands on board regardless of rank, were focused on the invasion's success. No one thought of his own interests, but only how he would help his shipmates in this commonly shared task. He says, and I quote, I remember noting in my mind how I had never been happier. Think about that. Heading into the breach, as it were, he'd never been happier. Well, as you might guess, after the successful invasion and return to England, at least for this ship's crew, everyone noted a difference in the atmosphere on board ship. It was still friendly. It was a well-run ship. But several of the sailors, sensing the difference, asked the young chaplain why things had changed. Knox reflects, the answer is quite simple. During those months that preceded and followed D-Day, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness in them. We gave ourselves to our shared activity and objective Once the undertaking was over, we reverted to our own purposes as we do normally. Kent Hughes then sums it up with Chaplain Knox with this. The fellowship of the gospel is an epic fellowship. 
No punching cookies here. This is the fellowship of compatriots bound together in a great cause. You will not understand Paul's letter to the Philippians if you do not understand this. Well, about me. I I truly cannot pinpoint the exact time and day and place, but I do know that God saved me when I went to war in Desert Storm some 28 years ago. I was a young Air Force captain and F-4 fighter pilot. Cynthia and I were living in Europe, West Germany at the time, and uh, we had just had our third child, Caitlin, and I'd say that by every worldly measure, I was, I was well and successful. But on the inside, I, at a heart and, and mind level, at a soul level, I've increasingly found myself unwell. I know I was longing for something more than this world of jets and achievement would offer, and I look back now and I realize that God was beginning his work of salvation in me. God does the work of salvation. He comes after us, and that is surely my experience. But he was starting his work through my growing anxiety. And so, myriad circumstances in the summer of 1990, perhaps I'll share more at some other point in the future, these circumstances multiplied in a way that put me in discomfort, hardship, danger, Deployed far from home and family. There weren't really any phones. There were phone tents, but people listened to your phone calls. Um, We couldn't text. We didn't have FaceTime. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't really even have email. And uh, it it was quite the change, I'll say. And so this was in a manner of change far beyond anything I had anticipated. And the result was mostly bewilderment that my life script was going off script. It wasn't the idea that I was going to fight. The idea was I wasn't going to fight in the way that I had planned and trained. And so as timing and military assignment system would have it, I went as an Air Force advisor to Army ground units. Um, So I was a flyboy, and they made me go with the Army. I love the Army. My son is in the Army, and uh, we pray for him daily as he serves in Afghanistan. But this was just sort of out of something familiar and into something utterly unfamiliar. And... um, Soon a discouragement that I had not yet known in my life started to emerge, and I was fighting it and fighting to understand and answer some questions for which my current framework, my secular worldview, if you will, was insufficient to answer. Sounds like a pretty cool time for a missionary, right? So enter uh, a lieutenant colonel who was my boss, Lieutenant Colonel John Berkheimer. He was my Apostle Paul so to speak. Colonel Burkheimer was my supervisor and, praise God, a humble Christian man. He was a prayerful servant leader. And he saw through spiritual eyes a subordinate in need of the gospel, in need of gospel truth and encouragement, and he risked much to offer me scripture. It was, this, this conversation went down while we sat in a Humvee. It was well into the initiation of the air war and just a few days shy of the ground invasion. So Colonel Berkheimer and I and others would soon be driving into Iraq and Kuwait instead of flying. And we'd be performing ground duties in support of the Army, Marine, and Coalition ground forces. So the colonel asked me some leading questions, and my answers indicated to him I was in spiritual turmoil, which I know now these many years later was the enemy not wanting to give me up without a fight. I told Colonel Berkheimer that I wanted to be a Christian that I wanted to believe and be saved, and that I thought that I might be saved 
but that I wasn't sure I was or I could be or would be. And he simply, I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, said one of his favorite Bible verses of all time was Philippians 4, 8. And then he quoted it to me from memory. Calmly, I remember it almost in a whisper, but with profound conviction. conviction. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Stop thinking about dumb stuff and think about these things. I think this moment demonstrates the power of truth to penetrate a softened heart. When God makes you ready, someone comes with the word, someone comes with truth, and amazing things happen, eternal things happen. It's a miracle of God in his sovereignty, using ordinary people in his work of salvation. So if you don't think your witness matters, think again. You don't know what situation you're going to find yourself in. But I know I'm incredibly grateful to this man to give me these words. I I needed to receive and choose in this moment, in this pivotal moment. So as I listened to him, my sense of self lessened. Even as my desire for something great or something beyond me swelled, I wanted to be this man's brother for reasons beyond personal gain. I wanted to follow him wherever he led, even if it was to be running into hot lead, should that be God's call on us. I wanted God-inspired fellowship. He was so gracefully and graciously demonstrating I wanted my new sense of cause and fellowship to inspire me to write action. Like those who had courageously hit the beaches at Normandy for the case of freedom for the whole world. I was seeing with spiritual eyes and understanding my call in this new greatest of quests. I was given a profound decision grid in a moment of struggle and temptation. Just that verse alone. Just that verse alone. I found a sense of peace in a decidedly un peaceful circumstances, and I better knew what to do. Well, here I am all these years later. I look different. (laughs) I feel different. But God is a good God, and I have been given the gift to preach on Philippians 4. And then this verse 8 in particular, our God is awesome. Our God is awesome. Amen? So in our time remaining, I want to go straight to the Scripture and let it speak directly to us. Good time to look back at the beginning of chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins with a clear transition, typical of Paul, and that transition word is therefore. When you see one of these in Paul's epistles, it's time to pull out your pencil, your pen, take notes. Uh, Most of the time what follows is very practical application. It's sort of the take-home points. So in verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stop there. Here he is appealing to the fellowship of the gospel, this idea of fellowship that hopefully I developed for you. He's appealing to the fellowship of the gospel. And as Kent Hughes says it, it's an epic fellowship, an eternal fellowship. He's also, in this opening, qualifying and confining his audience to believers who will because they are saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, understand what he commands next, to stand firm, stand firm in the Lord. That's what we read in uh, Ephesians earlier. This exhortation to stand firm, folks, is a combat command. And it mirrors the whole armor of God military language from Ephesians 6. If you want to turn there real quick, quick and see that after describing what I would say is daunting language, what the Christian fellowship and eternal quest is truly up against, 
in terms of spiritual warfare, Paul says in verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God, you may be able to with- so you- that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, in the evil day, withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Well, think about this for a second. This idea of standing firm probably would have made little sense to an unbeliever, someone outside the epic fellowship. Why? Because a person cannot stand firm in adversity in the manner that Paul is talking about until they're able to take a stand by faith for truth, for the gospel. And a person cannot take a stand for the gospel unless they comprehend their standing before a holy God. But through the miracle of conversion... God in his sovereignty doing the work, believers are invited into the fellowship and then our standing changes forever. Through Christ's finished work on the cross, our sin debt is paid. God's just just wrath is satisfied. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We are indwelled with the Holy Spirit and the ultimate fellowship of the Trinity is opened to us. We become adopted heirs and now royal family members. Wow. Wow. I don't know. If this is an inspiration to to join the great quest, you know, if you're looking for something to join, um, a fellowship to enter into, I'm not sure there's any, well, I know there's nothing better. We want to stand firm, ready to defend the gospel together. And if you think about, as I said earlier, just what's in the news, there's sadness, there's disconnect, there's muck, there's acrimony. There's antichrist blather nonstop. We see it and hear it daily. But if this is an inspiration, I don't know what is. So back to Philippians 4. What Paul does next in verses 2 and 3 is appeal to unity in the fellowship. Let's be on the same page. We have a higher mission. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion... Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here, Paul is graciously but firmly, firmly admonishing two members of the fellowship that they need to make peace. And they need to make peace within the context of the greater quest. And he appeals to a third party person to help a peacemaker while he's also affirming them and the other proven warriors as bona fide members of the fellowship of the gospel. Their names are in the book of life. So as I was thinking through this one, I guess in army infantry terms, this is an appeal to those serving in the foxhole together. Keep your spear points or your gun barrels outward toward the real enemy. I think the admonishment and appeal of this verse just makes Paul's leadership so real and so relevant. Internal conflicts happens, folks. It, it happens in marriages. It, people working together in common cause hit points of disagreement. It happens on pastoral teams, on elder boards, within the body. And for sure, I can tell you it happens inside high-stakes, high-risk military operations. Why? Because people serving together in a great cause are passionate They believe in what they're doing, and the higher the stakes and the greater the risk, the higher the emotion when ideas differ. So Paul, in his inspired wisdom, is writing the words of God in this letter to the Philippian church, and he's telling them, remember the bigger picture. Remember the bigger picture. 
keep the eye on the prize of the gospel together. So then with this gracious rebuke and refocused passage accomplished, Paul then shifts to full-on encouragement mode. Look at verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Boy, there's a lot, a lot packed in there in these four verses. Lots of sermons, I'm sure, many, many in future will be mined here. They're sermons that can focus on rejoicing in the face of adversity rather than sinking into blame and bitterness and victimhood. Paul is basically saying we're not victims. We have to remember we're part of a greater fellowship, an eternal fellowship. We have forgiveness and we have freedom in Christ. We're not victims. We have gifts that exceed anything worldly. So in faith, we're to rejoice always, in always and all the time. That's a, that's a choice. That's a choice. Certainly, there's a sermon or two on choosing not to embrace temptations to be anxious, to let emotions and feelings rule when the heat turns up in life and when the pressure comes strong. I know I was anxious this week. I was anxious about preaching. <laughs> I'm getting through it, so I'm not as anxious. Um, there's a call to think here and choose. Choose better. There's a noble appeal to rational decision-making under duress. And if that's not enough, this four-verse passage offers a prayer and thanksgiving template. For believers, that affirms not just the living God of the universe's attributes. Think about this. The prayer template is saying God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. But he's also a personal God who knows us and who hears us and honors requests that reflect his will for us. This prayer template affirmed God's love and his goodness, his sovereignty over our lives, and his mercy. So the pattern here is believe. Believe because there is more than every reason to, and then choose in keeping with your belief. This is the advice I needed And the fellowship I wanted 28 years ago, and it's the fellowship of the gospel I'm excited to preach to you this morning. And then this amazing promise in verse 7 that affirms faith and then action based on faith. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A promise of peace, supernatural peace. Supernatural peace that brings comfort in adversity, tragedy, and loss. The elders get together and pray on Sundays and we pray through uh, the needs of the body and we, we know there's hurt. Uh, it's, it's a heavy, important burden we have. It's, it's something that we take very seriously, but we know in this body there's loss. We know in this body there's, there's hurt. And here, there's a promise. It's an amazing verse, the peace of God. Supernatural peace. But there's military overtones in this language. This is a peace that guards what makes us utterly unique as beings made in God's image, our human hearts and our minds. The word for heart in the original Greek refers to the source and seat of soul and spirit in the emotional life. The word mind refers to the capacity for thinking, understanding, and reasoning. Well, if you don't think there's competing truth claims out there about what our hearts and our minds are to 
think about or focus on, let's look at another choice. And this choice comes from our day, from someone not in prison or under persecution. There's an author by the name of Ernest Becker who won a Nobel Prize in 1973 for literature for a book he wrote entitled The Denial of Death. I read this book as an undergraduate student when I was at Vanderbilt University, and I would say it had a strong influence over my pre-salvation thinking. Becker was an atheist, and I believe remains one, and had this to say about the lot of man who is this, in this author's understanding, simply sits alone at the top of the evolutionary food chain, pondering the dilemma of being godlike in our abilities, but no better off than bugs or plants in terms of knowing any meaning beyond the temporal life. I quote, This is the paradox. He, man, is out of nature and hopelessly in it. He is dual, up in the stars, and yet housed in a heart-pumping, breath-gasping body that once belonged to a fish and still carries the gill marks to prove it. His body is a material, fleshy casing that is alien to him in many ways. The strangest and most repugnant way being that it aches and bleeds and will decay and die. Man, listen to this, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness in that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with, end quote. Becker's premise in this book is that we cannot, and therefore we do not live with the dilemma. We simply ignore it as long as we can. We deny death until we no longer can. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying. Well, I would say this strategy may work well when death is a ways off, or when you're young and healthy and going to university, or it may suffice for a time when we fill our lives with busyness, substitute reality with escape behaviors or unrighteousness. But I'll tell you, this guy didn't help me much when I was sitting in the desert 28 years ago and found myself in harm's way. So give me the God of peace who will guard my heart and my mind any day. Folks, this isn't evident to you yet. We live in a combat zone. This is a, this is a military message from a military man. We live in a war zone. The Christian life is battle and there are simply no safe spaces outside of God's truth. We are battling our own sin nature. We're rushed by the spirits of the age. Think of all the isms. Humanism, naturalism, hedonism, leftism, rightism, existentialism. How many antichrist-isms can you come up with? The list gets longer every single day. And if that's not enough, we have an enemy that wants our eternal separation from the God who created us in his image and loves us. There is no safe space apart from God because the battleground is our hearts and minds. But lest we despair, praise God, we have the gospel, right? We have the gospel. Because Jesus, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, through him we can be saved. This is our safe space. Through God's grace and by our faith, we can now not only survive in the battle, but we can thrive. And we can thrive in a triumphant way. It's not the thriving that the world would offer, but it's true thriving. It's eternal thriving. But the fight's not passive. There's stuff we got to do. There are things we're responsible for and we're accountable for. And this is where Paul brings the very practical toolkit to success in verse 8. The whatever is list. I love it. The whatever is list. 
eight God emanating realities that we are to think on. Well, real quick, what does it mean to think? How are we to use these incredible brains in a responsible way? Well, we're uniquely made in God's image. There's nothing in the universe like us. We're made in God's image. The human brain is extraordinary, and it's extraordinarily important in God's perfect design and purpose for us. He created us in his image. Modern scientists and medical professionals, they use big words to describe the mind. It's wondrous, it's mysterious, it's unparalleled, it's magnificent, it's amazing, it's astonishing. All these descriptions absolutely true, if not inadequate. But listen to this. This is the really, truly awesome thing about our brains that's missed by most because it's outside the gospel. And it goes to God's purpose for giving us this gift in the first place. We are to think like God himself. Kent Hughes puts it this way. The dizzying potential of the human mind reaches its apex and the possibility of possessing the mind of Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. No computer will ever be able to think God's thoughts nor will any device be able to know the heart of God or do his works. But the mystery that resides between our ears has the capacity, indeed, it was created for this, to have the mind of Christ. And then we have to do it in word and deed. Right action begins with right thinking. Having God's thoughts, the mind of Christ, does inspire the right word and deed that is in us, God's will for us, and therefore good for us. Good for others and pleasing to him. It's not just the fellowship that we want to be in. We want to be advancing the fellowship with our choices. So now Paul, so practical in his God-inspired letter to the Philippians, gives us a decision framework. And that's where we'll go next. He begins, verse 8, Finally, brothers, or my twist for this sermon, Finally, beloved members of our epic fellowship, Whatever is true, choose for your mind to dwell there. I think that the word true comes first in the string because we are to launch from truth into the more practical others that follow. Scripture tells us unequivocally that there is a real and profound difference between truth and untruth. Using the more hard-hitting language between truth and lies. The Bible tells us God is true and all else is not true. This is a life and death axiom, folks, because our eternity hinges on whether we believe it or not. So I don't want to beat people up in the culture, but I do want to offer something that's kind of stuck in my mind, and it's these coexist bumper stickers you see out there. Um, I think well-meaning folks put those on their cars because you know, they want to appeal to just uh, getting along and... and uh, working together, but you think about this. These are the religious symbols of non-Christian faith traditions, and it's New Age philosophy on there. And it's interesting that they end the coexist with the Christian cross as the T. It's an appeal for tolerance and peace, but this message is utterly hostile to the gospel. It is. It's hostile to truth. To what is true? It's a claim that directly contradicts and competes with the gospel. The gospel tells us Christ is God, the second member of the Trinity. Christ is the embodiment of truth. He, Christ, is all truth, and his gospel is truth, period, dot, end of discussion. 
Therefore, a mind that contemplates what is true not only sees Christ the Word who became flesh in the gospel, but such a mind also rationally engages the creation, rejects irrational thinking, and speaks truth in every avenue of life, from faith to science to relationships to public life to marriage to parenting to literally whatever, whatever is true. Paul implores us, use your head, dwell in truth, and choose to act like Jesus. So we're going to clip through the rest of the list here. And acting like Jesus means being honorable, or as some translations say it, being noble. In my military service covering nearly 30 years, I experienced a military emphasis on honor. In fact, core values of West Point, duty, honor, country. An honorable military officer puts service to others and the mission ahead of his or her own interest and does not shrink, does it with integrity and dignity putting others first. Paul demonstrates this type of honorable behavior as he writes from prison. The tone and tenor of his letter is amazing as he sits in prison. And of course, Jesus Christ, God eternal, volunteering to endure the cross for our sake is the ultimate honorable behavior. Let's look at what's next on the list. Dwelling on truth and acting like Jesus means discerning what is just or right and then doing it well with courage and confidence. God's character and Christ's example define righteousness. So as believers, we really have everything we need to discern, to choose what is right. We're without excuse. Even unbelievers know right and therefore are without excuse. Romans 2.15 tells us God's law, His righteousness, literally written on our hearts, that our conscience and our thoughts are either going to accuse us or it's going to tell us we're doing right. Another powerful, powerful example that we're made in God's image, that we're unique, we're especially unique. Next on the list is purity. I think a big, big deal in our conversation, in our culture. Of course, sexual thought and behavior is covered under purity, as it should be. Our culture is tragically collapsing in on itself, folks, as we debate sex and gender. I'll just preach it this way this morning. God's design is perfect. God's instructions for his design are perfect and complete in Scripture. Sexual union is an unspeakably beautiful gift from God to us, meant for his purposes, which is also our good. The promise of the gift is found only, listen, only and exclusively in complete respect for and obedience to his word. Anything else is not good for us. Anything else is not good for us. But the implication of pure doesn't stop there. Paul, using the word pure, is meaning that it extends to all areas of moral purity in thought or action, which means dwell on those things untouched or untainted by evil. We suffer when we choose otherwise. Lots of choices out there, movies, um, concerts, uh, who to hang out with, who to talk about, what conversations you let yourself in. This is where purity covers this, and we can make better choices. Let's keep moving. What about whatever is lovely? In the original Greek, the word selection implies or emphasizes being pleasing, friendly, amiable, agreeable. This whatever includes aesthetically pleasing things as well. God's creation is good. We live in Alaska. We know that. God's creation is amazing. It's awesome. It's so much so that Quite a few people succumb to the temptation to worship the creation itself instead of the creator. 
We see that in our culture. Well, as I was looking at this one, I just went right to personal application and pondering whatever is lovely for me. I'll just say I want to be known as a lovely husband. My wife, Cynthia, who is lovely, likes northern lights. Uh, Actually, likes, probably not a very apt description. Uh, There are levels of interest here that I just don't get. (laughs) There's apps, there's junky networks and such. Um, So, of course, the Northern Lights here only like to show themselves at Anchorage at 2 or 3 in the morning, and it's on really, really cold nights. So, a lovely husband would, of course, set an alarm, get up, dress, be agreeable, be amiable, drive his wife to flat top when the app says the odds are good, and then very lovingly smile when two out of three times the cloud coverage is too much and you can't see anything. Or the app was wrong. How can that be? The app was wrong. Well, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but um, I hope you see the point. We can choose loveliness. We can choose it. And it can and does make all the difference in our God-ordained relationships. Husbands, think about that. Be a lovely husband. Be a lovely husband. We'll talk about wives next time I preach. (laughs) So on to the next one on Paul's list. What is commendable or of good repute? As Christians, we are to represent God. We are to represent our Lord. We wear the purple of royalty. We represent Christ. And so there is an expectation as we are perceived by others to do that well. Our reputation, what other people say about us, should honor Christ, our King, our leader, our Lord. To think and act on whatever is commendable is to walk the proverbial walk and be Christ, not just to fellow believers, but most importantly to an unbelieving world. You see it, the cynical and vindictive nature of our culture, they, they love to catch Christians being unchristian. And boy, the hue and cry is always over the top when they get a gotcha moment. It's heartbreaking. So sad is our ongoing national discourse. It's heartbreaking. But you know what? Even when we fall, we can be commendable. We can remember that modeling humility, contrition, repentance, grace, and forgiveness when we or others in the fellowship blow it is commendable as well. So we're almost to the end. We're going to land the plane here in a minute. A couple more important thoughts. Any excellence and anything worthy of praise are both what I would describe as measures of success regarding what some have called the the stunning six. Truth, honor, righteousness, justice, purity, loveliness, being commendable. Thinking on these six and choosing behaviors that manifest them is excellence. That is excellence. Think and do. I think excellence is not a destination, but it's a motivator. Christ is excellent. He is the standard. Excellence is then wanting to be like Christ. And it's manifested when we see each day, each relationship, each task, each thing God would have us do as an opportunity. An opportunity to do it better than the last time we did it. It's never being satisfied, never believing arrogantly that we've arrived as individuals, as a church. Excellence is striving for the perfection that Jesus Christ demonstrated for us. And affirmation, then, is anything worthy of praise. It's what results. It's what results when we strive. And our praise is the praise for our Lord who enables it all. We give him all the credit. We give him all the credit. It's really encouraged when the Alabama quarterback was praising God and giving a testimony in front of a national audience after coming in and saving the game. It was an amazing Amazing witness. So it's time to finish here. As it were, 
with verse 9, these things Paul writes, you have received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. Here Paul is saying to them, you can trust me because you know me. Believe what I tell you because you know me. Loving, like a parent, he offers them an utterly transparent look at his life, his choices, his decisions. He's saying to them, I'm authentic. And we know Paul experienced Christ personally in a manner that his flock in Philippi, or, or we for that matter, could never experience or never could or would. But Paul understands that a mature believer actually in God's design and plan for the church is the model of Christ. And as such, exudes the beauty and attractiveness needed to reach and soften hearts. Check me out, Paul is saying. Test my decision grid. Follow my lead, my example. Do what I've modeled. And then not only will the peace of God guide your hearts and minds, the God of peace himself will walk with you. Paul knows this all to be true because he writes to them from a despairing prison. Incredible words of life. So, happened for me in a Humvee. Here's Paul writing to the church in Philippi. All kinds of political things going on, all kinds of challenges, but he is writing the words of truth and life. What an audacious claim. Paul is saying that what he has in prison far exceeds anything the world can offer. Health, wealth, power, prestige, these are counterfeits. Faith in Christ brings fellowship and purpose. Right thinking results in right action, peace with God, the peace of God, and the God of peace is our reward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit had ministered to us this morning and that we would go out this week and think, think differently, think and make good, right, honorable choices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.